This is uh, Dr. Peter Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. Um, and today I have the great pleasure of introducing uh, Dr. Monica Janda, who's at the Center for Health Services Research at the University of Queensland in Australia, and also Dr. Andreas Obermeyer. He's at the Queensland Center for Gynecologic Cancer Research at the University of Queensland in Australia. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking to them both uh, about the FEM trial, uh, complete pathologic response following levonorgestrel intrauterine device and clinically stage one endometrial adenocarcinoma results of a randomized clinical trial that was published in the journal Gynecologic Oncology. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Pedro. Thanks for having us. Of course, absolutely a pleasure, and certainly we have um, many questions uh, for you both, and this is a great opportunity um, to uh, to hear from the, the primary and senior author of this really very important trial. So with that, I wanted to start, um, perhaps uh, Monica, start with you, and uh, if you can just tell us uh, uh, by discussing and start by discussing as to why you perform uh, this study um, where did you see the, the gap in knowledge? Yes, that's a really good question. So it actually started in about 2012 um, when we conducted a meta-analysis of um, conservative treatment in endometrial cancer. And we found that most of the studies that um, used fertility-sparing treatment at that time were very small, mostly case reports or case series. Um, and they had non-randomized observational designs. And another aspect that we noticed was, was that, uh, although we all know that uh, overweight and obesity are so important in endometrial cancer development, weight loss was actually not commonly used in, uh, in these studies or not mentioned. And another reason why uh, I guess we started this study, because at that time, some window of opportunity studies uh, came out that uh, in indicated that metformin might be useful in the treatment of endometrial cancer, but again, it had not been tested in a randomized trial. So then, Monica, I mean, uh, you know, certainly I think that most of our audience is uh, familiar with the benefits of the, um, the levonorgestrel IUD in patients with endometrial hyperplasia and with cancer. Um, so where did you see the, the benefit of potentially adding all of these other components, adding metformin and adding or implementing weight loss? Um, where, where did you see that this would, this potentially as a composite could be of, uh, of help to these patients? Right. Yes. So, so again, our meta-analysis at the time showed that most treatments were combinations of uh, all hormones, and maybe the LNG IUD in, in a few very small studies. And many of the studies complained about additional weight gain during that treatment and also a possible impact on mood. And so um, we thought that uh, maybe using the LNG IUD in this uh, setting um, could be good in combination potentially with weight loss. And we thought that this could maybe also impact uh, uh, women's quality of life and, and mood outcomes. And we also thought that if we added uh, weight loss, maybe we could reverse some of that hormonal pressure um, that, again, I guess has led to the endometrial cancer. And so hopefully we could uh, change some of the circulating biomarkers driving the endometrial cancer by either the weight loss or the metformin. Mm -hmm. 
And so we hope to really improve the response to the treatment. Yeah, fantastic. And but what better way to do it prospectively and uh, and set it up as a as a prospective trial. So then that um, brings me to Andreas, and um, let's discuss a little bit about the methodology. Um, can you start by just giving us some information as to who were the participants in, in this study? Um, what were the inclusion and exclusion criteria that you set out uh, from the beginning? Yeah, absolutely, Petra. So at a higher level, there was and still is a need to improve uh, the treatment of mainly two groups of uh, endometrial cancer patients. There is this group, I think, that we're all familiar with, uh, elderly, multimorbid patients. Uh, and when we treated them laparoscopically uh, in a previous paper, we have shown high conversion rate, long lengths of stay, and incredibly high uh, adverse events rate. Um, so we published that in 2016 in preparation of the, of, of the, of the main paper. And then secondly, there are young women desiring to become pregnant uh, and carry a baby, and these women would have previously advised uh, to have a hysterectomy, and we felt um, that was maybe, could be, uh, or is associated with quite significant um, morbidity and adverse outcomes. So we included, uh, we targeted main, mainly these groups of patients. We targeted patients with endometrial hypoplasia and endometrial adenocarcinoma. We limited uh, the inclusion to patients with figure grade one endometrial adenocarcinoma who were not able to have extra uterine disease on a CT scan. Uh, we did an MRI scan that um, needed to show uh, invasion of less uh, than half of the molecular thickness. Patients also had to have a BMI of higher than 30 because we assumed that obese and morbidly obese patients would be very susceptible to LNG IUD. However, in hindsight, that may have been a bias um, and you could question that inclusion criteria. So overall, we included patients um, where the LNG IUD did not work. Uh, we were confident that we wouldn't do a lot of damage. Uh, but who were at the same time at a high risk of developing unwanted adverse events uh, from a hysterectomy. Mm -hmm. and, and Andreas, one of the things that I that I noticed also was that there was um, a requirement for a serum CA125 level of less than 30. Um, and, and the question is that, you know, certainly at least in, in the U.S., um, this is not something that we routinely check uh, in patients with uh, endometrial cancer, uh, and particularly, you know, certainly patients who have low-risk uh, endometrial cancer. Uh, why was this um, a, a requirement in, in this study? Yes, absolutely. So in one of our previous papers, um, Jim Nickin is the first author, and this paper has been published in the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer in 2014, uh, we have shown that a preoperative serum C125 of higher than 30 uh, was associated with a 36% risk of extra uterine disease, uh, which is much, much higher than the average. Um, so for the aim of this study, we just really wanted to do everything that we could do to minimize the risk of doing harm because in the worst case, 
we would have patients who would not respond to the LNG IUD, and certainly these patients should not sustain harm from taking part in the trial. That was the that was the reason for that. Excellent, and I'd just like to uh, remind our uh, um, audience and. Uh, uh, obviously, as an international audience, sometimes with the abbreviations, uh, um, LNG IUD is the levonorgestrel um, IUD. Um, so the next question is actually comes from two two of our fellows. Um, uh, they ask, uh, what would make a patient ineligible for the weight loss arm of this study as you're looking at the inclusion-exclusion criteria? Yes, Peter, so maybe I can answer that question. Um, in our study, we offered women access to a comprehensive Weight Watchers program, which was Weight Watchers um, is probably also available um, in many countries across the world, and it's a standardized um, program that has been quite successful and shown to help uh, people lose, uh, lose weight quite well. And so uh, our women could attend both the in-person group sessions if they wanted, or there's also now an online Weight Watchers program. However, there, uh, in some areas um, of Australia, it may still be impossible to attend that program. And so if, if the women could not access either of these modalities, or if weight loss was contraindicated for any reason, then uh, she was ineligible for this arm of the study. We also had some women who already had tried Weight Watchers before and, and weren't happy with um, doing it again, and so um, they didn't um, they didn't enroll in that arm. But we're still eligible to enroll in the two other arms. So, um, so that was the reason why some women were ineligible for weight loss. Yeah, and Monica, one of the things a question comes from uh, Eric Estrada. He's a, he's our uh, one of our fellows from Guatemala, um, and he asked, you know, certainly. Uh, in your opinion, uh, what makes the, the Weight Watchers uh, program um, more successful or, or, or successful in the setting? And, and if they don't have, uh, you know, certainly if somebody's in a country where they don't have Weight Watchers program, um, are there any other programs that could be implemented uh, to, to achieve uh, the similar goal? Yes, certainly. So, so Weight Watchers is uh, just just very standardized. It has um, it it uh, guides women into understanding the calorie content of different foods. There are also some set menus in supermarkets um, that have a certain cal caloric um, intake. And it also talks a lot about uh, other things that you can do to lose weight, such as physical activity and just moving more. And yeah, has been tried and tested in a number of randomized trials and was shown to be more successful, for example, than just counseling by general practitioners. Um, but uh, there, there will be many other similar uh, weight uh, programs out there, and increasingly um, there are a lot of online programs available that people can choose from, online apps that uh, also try to help people to change their behavior. But we all know, of course, that uh, losing weight is very uh, difficult, and so not everyone succeeded. Mm -hmm. Some of the women had remarkable success in our program, and uh, and and these women were really grateful that uh, we focused on, on on their health. But others did not achieve strong enough weight loss, and so we definitely need more research on this topic in the future. Very well. So we talked about the uh, inclusion and exclusion criteria. 
Um, Monica, can you tell us about uh, the interventions in all three arms of the study? Yes, so, so one arm received just the LNG IUD, and the second arm received LNG IUD plus weight loss, and the third arm received LNG um, IUD plus metformin. And patients came back every three months to have uh, a check um, of uh, their um, response or not, so they had a biopsy, and then a new LNG IUD was uh, reinserted if everything was okay. Uh, the outcome was assessed at six months. Very well. And um, there were also ahead. blood taken. Mm -hmm. oh, sorry, yeah, there were also blood taken at baseline three and six months, um, and they offer the opportunity now for biomarker study. So that that brings me to a, a question that actually was uh, submitted by as, again several of our fellows. Um, how, what was your definition uh, in terms of outcomes measures when you were evaluating? Uh, those patients at those time frames for, uh, I think, you know, certainly we know of complete response, but also what about for partial response? What were the definitions of those outcome measures? Yes, Pedro, I'm, I might be uh, in a position to answer that. So first of all, um, all patients had to have a pill or sort of an endometrial sampling or a curated three months. Um, And that was important because we felt from a safety point of view, we wanted to exclude disease progression because um, you know that some of the highly differentiated, well-differentiated grade one and amygdalama carcinomas, they sometimes can mimic like a serous carcinoma and you just don't see it initially. Mm -hmm. So that was the first uh, intervention in three months. But then we assessed at six months. Uh, and we defined as a complete pathological response the complete absence of endometrial hypoplasia or endometrial cancer. Um, so there were very strict uh, criteria. Um, your colleague Shannon Weston published um, a very similar study uh, just a few months before uh, our study was published. Um, And in Shannon's uh, study, uh, the criteria were less strict. So we we felt that we wanted to apply very, very strict criteria. And that could also be a reason why our responses were a little bit lower compared to the Andy Anderson study. Um, so, for example, if a patient had endometrial adenoid carcinoma to start with, uh, And if the patient had ended up with endometrial hyperplasia with atypia, that would have been regarded as a partial response uh, in our study and not a complete response. Um, I should also say that we made a big effort to um, um, to blind uh, response data and pathological outcomes. So uh, assessment of response was performed by two gynecological pathologists who were blinded to the patient's ID and did not have access to the clinical database. Mm. Um, and they assessed response separately and independently uh, of each other and only if there was discordance, they, they spoke with each other. And it was actually quite interesting uh, for me personally um, how important the central pathology uh, review was because um, sometimes we had quite... Um, interesting data that coming from the sites 
And when we reviewed that, that was then maybe different. Yeah, and, and absolutely. I think this uh, highlights the value of, uh, of the central pathology review, particularly in these studies where you're looking at elements of either complete response or partial response. So I'm really glad that you um, actually added that um, in our discussion. Um, and, and Andreas, b- before we get into the uh, results of the study, and obviously we, we have uh, several questions uh, regarding that, but before we get into the results, um, I understand there were several protocol amendments um, that were performed during the study. Can you provide some details uh, as to why these were done? Yeah, absolutely. So, Pedro, I should I should start answering this by saying that there was an element of um, of a learning curve in this trial, right? Because you map something out on a piece of paper and you say, well, patients have this histological diagnosis, then they come and see us, and then we do this and that. Well, that works, but uh, <laughs> there are certain limitations to this. So, for example, I'll give you a practical example. So, in Australia, what happens is a patient has a PNC, um, and, um, and there is a routine process that patients get seen between four and six weeks, after after any procedure. And so it happens that, for example, this patient uh, receives centimeter cancer diagnosis after six weeks, after the DNC, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say histopathology was only discussed then. When the patient got referred, she sometimes needs travel, uh, and we just ended up not having enough time to organize the tests, like the CT scan, the MRI, C up to five, and everything, right? So you can see that time blows out and whatnot. So we, for example, had to extend the time frames. So, and that was, that happened, I think, twice, uh, where we had to put in an amendment. Then we had amendments where, uh, certain patients, for example, had quite heavy bleeding, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you just can't say to a patient, well, just carry on bleeding and, and, you know, we kind of randomize in a few weeks time. That also doesn't work, uh, in clinical practice. So these patients received, um, let's say systemic progestins. And originally we had, we had an exclusion criteria that patients who received systemic progestins or any progestins, in fact, prior to intervention, they were, they had to be excluded. So we had to exclude a lot of people. Mm. Um, and from the study, and we thought, well, we're not getting anywhere, right? We're not making progress. So we, we relaxed this criteria and said, well, if patients had uh, systemic progestins just a few weeks before enrollment, just to stop bleeding, that would be okay and testing would be eligible, for example. Um, and thirdly, one really interesting exclusion criteria, we, uh, we said, for example, women had to have a BMI of higher than 30. Well, that makes a lot of sense for many patients. But then we had people, for example, women who were leaner, who had a BMI uh, of less than 30, and they still had endometrial hyperplasia, and they still wanted to fall pregnant, and they wanted to get onto trials. So this was the last uh, criteria that we relaxed, just in order that these women could come on the trial. So, this, so these amendments were basically about 
relaxation of certain exclusion criteria that to start with we thought that we wanted to be very pure and strict but in the end it really created this situation where you could wonder whether then the trial had any real world um, relevance if we wouldn't have changed that so we changed it yeah absolutely and I think obviously that's not unique to this trial Uh, comes up in many uh, prospective uh, trials, as we know. Um, so now, Monica, let's get to the results of the FEM trial. Um, what do you think should be the highlights of these uh, of these results? Yes. So overall, we found uh, quite good response rate at six months of sixty-one percent um, overall response. And as uh, Andreas mentioned, that was a very strict. Um, a strict way in how that was defined. So 61% overall had a complete response. And when we stratified by endometrial hyperplasia with a tibia and uh, endometrial um, cancer, the, there was quite a strong difference in response with 82% of the women with uh, endometrial hyperplasia with a tibia responding compared to 43% of the women with cancer. And so that's a really important finding. And for me, because I'm very interested in, of course, prevention and early detection and um, helping women not to get uh, too far down uh, the track of uh, of their cancer journey. If we think about the natural history, I think this clearly means that we need to be much better in identifying the women at risk of endometrial cancer early. Mm-hmm. And uh, finding them early and intervening earlier than we maybe currently do. And so the question is, how do we do that? How do we identify the women at risk? And how can we uh, explain to them uh, their risk? Because there, there is not a lot of risk perception about endometrial cancer out there at the moment. And I think that's really work that we should, uh, that we should focus on over the next few years. Yeah, and and certainly a, a number of questions that I want to target specifically about some of the details of, of those results, um, and and, uh, and and talk about some of those response rates as well. But I want to start by you know when I started looking at the results, I saw that there were nine hundred and twelve participants that were screened, and one hundred and sixty five uh, randomized. Um, perhaps Andreas, you can tell me about or uh, discuss with us. Uh, what were the reasons for such a, a high rate of uh, screen failures? Yeah, absolutely. So, better um, this trial was quite disruptive, and um, and when we when we do these trials, that's similar like in LACE and in LAC, we record our screen uh, our screens quite meticulously, and that may be different to. Um, to uh, some other sites or whatnot. But um, so there were, to start with, um, there were a lot of people uh, and women who were suitable for surgery, right? Mm. So as if you go in the clinic and you propose this trial, right, there is a bunch of surgeons, right? And you say, put in a marina or, or operate on them. Well, they all want to operate, right? There's no question about this. We all want to. <laughs> we're all biased to surgery. So it's, it's a no-brainer. So we, we recorded that as a screen failure. Um, then there were other patients as well where, you know, I, I spoke before about protocol amendments where, for example, patients had prior treatment with progestins, like systemic progestins, or the gynecologist, the referring gynecologist put a marina in, and and then the the time frames were too long, 
so that uh, they became ineligible from that point of view. Then there were also some um, some really good um, screen failures, like uh, for example, when the C one to five was too high. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really believe this is a, a, a really good one. Um, and uh, and for example, if patients had lymphadenopathy, had um, uh, enlarged nodes on the CT scan, or when on on the MI the depth of myometrial invasion was uh, was too high. But basically, the majority of the screen failures is patients declined, patients wanted surgery, the surgeon wanted to operate on the patient, and the patient was suitable for surgery. So those were the main ones, actually. Yeah, no, and, and again, as you said, it sort of like reflects standard real-world uh, practice when you see these uh, these uh, circumstances. Uh, now, Monica, you, you mentioned um, the issue of weight loss, and I think that this is really great that in this study you were able to actually see what the outcomes were. Um, and one of the questions that we wanted to ask you was, what, what percentage of patients actually lose weight uh, when you intend this to, to, to be an outcome? Uh, and also, the other uh, comment that we were wanting to address was, did you see any significant weight loss in the control arm or in the metformin uh, group? Yes, that's a really good question. So we had, on average, um, in the women that were assigned to weight loss arm, uh, a weight loss of about 8 kilos, compared to 5 kilos in uh, the, the women who were uh, assigned to the LNG IUD only, and 3 kilos in the metformin uh, arm. However, within each of those groups, there was a remarkable wide range of weight loss. We had some women who lost up to 20 kilos, which is remarkably high in just six months, whereas we had also some women who continued to gain weight while they were on the study. And so it tells us that for some women, they were able to grasp this opportunity to really change um, their lifestyle while they were on trial and the uh, endometrial cancer diagnosis was something they took seriously and they uh, considered to, to lose weight from that moment on. But it's very important to realize that our, our patients had an average BMI of 47. And so this was a, very, a group that had struggled with, with their weight for a very long time. And the issue of weight and uh, obesity and overweight for them is a very um, serious one and one that isn't easy to overcome with many having many uh, weight loss attempts before. And we are currently doing some additional investigation of this topic and it's quite interesting to find that a number of women, when we talk to them, report about weight being something that is associated with this previous trauma that they experienced. And it's, it's really not a very easy topic uh, for them to talk about mm. in many ways. And one of the things we wanted to do originally was to have a value-based weight loss program rather than the um, standardized program we eventually used due to funding restrictions. So maybe that's something we can get back to in the future. Yeah. And and uh, I'll turn over this question to Andres because it goes back to what we were talking before with regards to the uh, amendments. And one of the things that 
we were discussing and looking at, at the results here is that um, the question was, you know, do, do you think that some of these amendments, like, for example, allowing patients to take oral progestins within 12 weeks before being randomized could have impacted the results of the study? Eduardo, I think is a very valid question, um, and and um, I'm happy to do bring this up. Um, as we discussed before, we had very strict exclusion criteria to start with, and we relaxed them progressively because they were in conflict with what happens in real clinical practice. Uh, and it would would we not have allowed for these patients to be enrolled, we would have run the risk of dissent of being removed from clinical reality. So to answer your question. All three arms had similar similar outcomes and had similar um, criteria, inclusion, exclu- exclusion criteria. So I think overall, I think the risk of influencing outcomes in the sample through relaxing those criteria was incredibly low because these patients only had, like these were not patients who had um, progestins like many months or years before, something like that. They just had progestins to to stop the bleeding. Um, and that is something that is done in clinical practice regularly and needs to be accommodated for. Um, yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah fair enough. And um, now I wanted to do this uh, question comes from Natalia Rodriguez uh, from Spain. And uh, Monica, maybe you can answer this one. Uh, because obviously there's been some reports regarding the fact that perhaps the patients with much higher BMI don't have such a great response to, to conservative management. And um, Natalia asked, do you consider that BMI was not predictive of response because it truly doesn't make a difference, uh, but rather from the fact that there was not enough patients in the study that met uh, these criteria? So I think this question definitely needs much further exploration. So Natalia is absolutely right. It's a very important one to consider. I guess our patients, as mentioned before, had a BMI on average of 47. And so the burden on this metabolic disease from their overweight and obesity would have been very high. And therefore, BMI alone may not have been the most uh, relevant contributor to that um, metabolic burden in these women. Um, the lack of association between various factors and response really tells us that much more work is needed to understand for whom the treatment, the, project, uh, the LNGIUD treatment is valuable, and for whom it should be avoided, and uh, biomarker work will be very important to help us in answering this question in the future. So we really don't know uh, why BMI was not predictive of response as yet, uh, but it was interesting to note that also in the end, the end of the study, which was non-randomized, um, the uh, BMI was not predictive, so, so it, it is consistent across the study. Excellent. Um, now, obviously, in any um, multi-arm study, a uh, question always comes up uh, regarding adverse events in each of the three arms. Andreas, can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, Pedro, this, this answer is very short. Uh, there were basically virtually no, uh, adverse events that relate to the intervention, which is also not, um, not unexpected. There were some adverse events that are expected in a sample like this, where you have very high comorbidity index, 
Um, we were initially concerned about metformin and we spent hours and hours to uh, discuss about metformin dose and how we apply it. But also the metformin adverse events in this sample was incredibly low. Um, of the 45 patients that were randomized uh, to the metformin, only four had issues that required uh, dose modification or withholding a dose or something like that, and those um, related to the gastrointestinal tract, such as constipation, diarrhea, nausea, uh, and there was one uh, uh, case of impaired renal function. But overall, basically, you could say, also from my clinical practice, because I also used this um, in my clinical practice, and you, you know that I'm a gynecological oncologist, there is hardly any any side effects from from using uh, a levonorgestrel interuterine device uh, in this setting. Yeah. So then now, uh, Andreas, I'm glad you bring up the topic of metformin because we, we did have uh, several questions about that. And uh, one of these questions is from Emma Allison, also from Australia. Um, and her question is, uh, how do you advise new patients diagnosed with endometrial cancer who are already taking uh, metformin? Yeah, so in the uh, in the same trial, basically these patients uh, continued the metformin. Um, so they were then randomized between LNG IOD alone versus uh, LNG IOD plus weight loss, uh, but they continued the metformin. And um, in our clinical practice, we just do the same. We advise patients who are metformin already for whatever reasons to continue. Excellent. And um, this next question comes from Natalia. Natalia Rodriguez again from Spain. Um, she says, based on the fact that merformin is associated with improved survival in women with endometrial cancer, um, what are your thoughts regarding the outcomes in the metformin group with regards to the response rate of uh, 57%? Yeah, thank you, Natalia. That's a tricky one. <laughs> I'm very grateful for this. <laughs> so, uh, I know um, well, it's it's a tricky one because uh, because we would think that survival has to do with response, right? But in our sample, that is kind of different. Um, so first of all, uh, the patient sample is different. When you look at uh, patients who where you look at survival in endometrial cancer, and then you look at these patients' endometrial cancer, survival is really not not such a big issue. Um, so we're looking at different patient groups, um, mm -hmm. and uh, and secondly, survival is also a different endpoint to response to treatment. So now we have basically different patient groups, and then we have different uh, endpoints. Uh, it would be possible that the patient can have a low response to treatment, but still good survival outcomes because. Uh, in our sample, certainly all patients would have good survival outcomes. Um, but I, um, so I would think those two issues, um, why is metformin related with good outcomes and why is metformin not related or related or not related to different response to, uh, to levonorgestrel IUD? are totally different things and, in my opinion, have very little to do with uh, each other. Um, 
The I would like to say though that we did notice that in one type of analysis, um, patients in the metformin group had a lower response rate. However, in this particular group or cell, the numbers are really low in the subgroups. And so, in this group, if we had, if we would have had so more two more complete responses, uh, they would have been they would have been completely on par with with everybody else. So we need to be careful that we don't over-interpret those results um, too much, you know? Excellent. And um, now continuing on the topic of uh, metformin, um, these two questions actually are from the next two questions from Sarah Nasser in uh, Charité in uh, Germany. Um, Her first question, and perhaps Andreas, you can address this, is... uh, what do you see as the reasons for non-compliance uh, with metformin, uh, and, and what was that rate of non-compliance? Uh, Pedro, there was basically no issue with non-compliance uh, in the group of people who took metformin. Um, you know, uh, I just can't see that from our data. Um, from a from a compliance point of view, metformin worked fine. Uh, it just uh, doesn't seem to be um, a medication that enhances response to LNG IUD. Um, so that's that's the short answer to that. Right. And then the second question from her, um, perhaps Monica, you can address this: is uh, getting to the to the role of bariatric surgery. Um, and obviously not something that was evaluated in the study, but her question is, what role do you think bariatric surgery should play in these patients? That's a really good question, Sarah. Thank you. You might be aware that there are studies ongoing. One of them uh, in the UK, uh, Emma Crosby led, showed that in, in women who undergo bariatric surgery, an unexpectedly high number of patients uh, are found to have unknown endometrial hyperplasia or endometrial cancer. In that study that uh, Emma Crosby did, the endometrial cancer patients were treated with hysterectomy, but the patients with the endometrial hyperplasia were observed. And interestingly, it was found that the hyperplasia completely regressed in parallel with the weight loss after the bariatric surgery. So that was really, really interesting. And again, points to that potential for preventing um, the progression to endometrial cancer, which would be really exciting. Whether this should be done with bariatric surgery or somehow else, uh, I think needs to be discussed really carefully because, as we know, bariatric surgery has significant side effects and potentially long-term health consequences. So it may not be the best avenue for uh, for patients. Um, so we have to look more into our li- living conditions in general and as provide more avenues for people to be more active and not sitting as much and in general the lifestyle that leads to uh, this cancer is something that really needs more discussion I think. Excellent. Thank you for sharing those results with us. Um, Now Andreas, uh, this question again uh, from Emma Allison. Um, She was wondering for the trial patients uh, uh, that continued with conservative management are you planning further follow-up to assess uh, sustainability of response? Is there a plan report on these patients for the future? Yes, absolutely. So 
while the FEM trial formally stopped at six months, uh, one of the amendments that we put in uh, just recently is to continue follow-up um, and to find out about some other very important uh, endpoints, such as fertility outcomes mm. um, or, you know, how many patients actually did need a hysterectomy um, because there were some patients who, in the six months, um, for them, the endometrial cancer diagnosis, and they were basically considered higher surgical candidates. For them, this was a wake-up call, and uh, we basically referred them to uh, physicians. They optimized their care, uh, and patients were keen to have hysterectomy afterwards. Or, for example, recurrence, right? Mm -hmm. We know that, uh, that the recurrence rate is significant. So all these are really important outcomes to patients and all of that needs to be tabulated and documented so that we can actually inform patients what they can expect from this treatment beyond the six months. Um, I'm in a very fortunate position to, um, to be one of the supervisors. Um, Montana O'Hara, one of our uh, PhD students, uh, is currently working on that uh, and summarizing the data. And uh, we're really hoping that Montana's data will inform patients about what they can expect from levonorgestrel IOD treatment in the long term. Fantastic. We look forward to that. And um, now, Monica, I wanted to ask you, uh, what would you say are the limitations of the FEM trial? Thanks, Pedro. So for me personally, I guess uh, one of the limitations were um, caused by funding limitations, which meant we used a standard weight loss program rather than one that really was specifically targeted towards uh, endometrial cancer patients and their specific needs. So um, if we had a future study, then probably I would hope that we could use something even more personalized uh, that was possible. Uh, another limitation was possible confounding factor, factors uh, that were caused by the patient's multimorbidity. So the uh, patients took a variety of other medications, which probably wasn't completely controlled for by the randomization. And finally, the FEM trial was a phase two trial, and it focused on response rates and not a number of really important other outcomes that we are now collecting um, subsequently, such as uh, hysterectomy and uh, recurrence rate, as Andreas just mentioned. So these were the main ones, I would say. Excellent. So, I, and I know I want to uh, be respectful of your time, really enjoyed speaking with you both. Uh, I just have two more questions, and uh, one of them is for Andreas, is uh, how have the results of this study impacted your own personal practice? Well, um I guess, I guess maybe one of the ways to, um, to illustrate that is on a real case of a patient that I saw two weeks ago. Mm. Um, so this is a 60 plus woman. Um, I think her age was 66 with a grade one endometriotis and carcinoma of the endometrium. Her BMI was 54. Mm. Uh, and she was mobilizing. Yeah, no. I heard that better. <laughs> she was mo she was mobilizing. She was mobilizing very slowly, right? So BMI fifty four. They can be they can be good too. But she was mobilizing really slowly and on a walking stick. Uh, 
I she was expecting me to take a the theater for uh, for hysterectomy. I told her that I would recommend elevenorgestrel um, IUD in her case, and I told her what my reasons were. She was not exactly convinced, so I didn't do a great job. She went back to her original referring gynecologist to discuss her concerns and that I possibly would have given up on her. The gynecologist rang me and I spoke to the gynecologist and I told her that it would be a no-brainer to offer her a laparoscopic hysterectomy if there wouldn't be an alternative treatment option. But now there is an alternative treatment option. If she would not have been offered the LNG IUD treatment and if she had a TLH and if she would have developed a serious adverse event and the case would be reviewed, the experts reviewing would say, was there actually a discussion about alternative treatment options? Mm. If now my alternative treatment option, which is the LNG IUD, is ineffective and we have to proceed with the TLH, and if she had an adverse event, then your reviewing experts would say that proceeding with the TLH was reasonable because we obviously explored our other options. Um, now, in this case, my referring gynecologist understood and realized that I have given it a lot of thought how we could achieve the same beautiful outcomes with potentially just less cost, personal cost, and less risk for everyone involved. But I think the... The, the really big thing with this is that we now have a treatment alternative available uh, that is very, very minimally invasive uh, and that works for a lot of women. It doesn't work for all women. We obviously have to put in a lot of work to identify who this treatment is ideal for and who this treatment is inappropriate for. But... Uh, but I believe we now have prospective data that will give us a very good estimate on on response rates uh, and that will allow us to constipate patients accordingly. Fantastic. Very, very well put, uh, Andreas. Thank you. Uh, one last question, and uh, I'll address this one to Monica. Um, where should we go from here regarding further research in this patient population? So we've discussed quite a few of the potential future research questions already and um, there is a special interest group in this uh, space that has formed actually to study how to increase the response rate to the um, LNG IUD. Um, there are groups that study endometrial resection, whether adding the oral projectin back in or whether bariatric surgery and all of these um, issues can can help in re increasing response rates. Uh, I think where we will be taking this research is to look really at the predictive factors. And another important uh, area where we want to study more is about, okay, so how, what are the information needs of the women? Do they actually know the risk factors? Uh, do they understand the different options? As I mentioned, uh, Monta uh, as Andreas mentioned, Montana O'Hara is uh, doing a PhD on this topic and has interviewed 20 patients already, so that we understand better their needs and can address them better in the future. Um, we will also hope to interview um, gynae oncologists in the future. So, if you are interested in this topic, please let us know. Uh, we would really love to hear from you on your thoughts uh, in, in in this area. 
And uh, another topic that we are really interested in is um, the long-term impact of uh, the LNG IUD treatment, which is also something we are currently studying. So thank you very much, Pedro. Those were really great questions, and thanks to the fellows as well from all around the world. Absolutely. I want to thank you both and thank you for offering so many, uh, obviously, uh, uh, options for uh, exploration and, uh, and future research. Uh, Monica Janda, Andreas Overmeyer, I want to thank you. I've really enjoyed uh, speaking with you. I've learned a great deal. Um, I want to also thank all of your collaborators uh, that uh, authored uh, this manuscript as well for their uh, contribution Uh, and I think, of course, obviously, we have to recognize the value of all the patients that uh, participated in this study. So uh, thank you both so much for your time. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you, Peter, for having us having us on the on the podcast. It's uh, it's a pleasure as always. Thank you.